0: Hey, welcome everybody to church. My assistant, Jonathan Keller, is helping me here with my pulpit tonight. Um, we had a headset malfunction. So I know you're used to me kind of walking up here with all my Britney Spears headset flare, but tonight's not the night. Smaller crowd tonight. Is that a state fair issue? Did they hear that I was speaking? It's a me thing. Tonight is our final night of um, our Wednesday night series, as Christian alluded to. We've been going through all summer long this book by Eric Minton called uh, It's Not You, It's Everything. And has everybody enjoyed it? That's not the right word. Debbie and I are the only ones enjoy. it. it, I say it's not the right word because it feels like it's one of those books where it's... um, Enjoyable in the sense where it's had good. This is not. Am I doing this wrong right now? Whatever, get this out of here. It's enjoyable in the sense where it's like there's a lot of good content for us to sink our teeth into and try to ask questions around and stir up good dialogue about. But it's not exactly like a light read. It's not exactly like one of those reads that's going to come in and affirm everything you already believe. It's enjoyable in the sense where it's going to push you and equip you to really thrive in your life, but it's going do to do so through the path of pain. And um, that's not always the most enjoyable. We have evaluated all series and all season, this understanding that we are all carrying inside of us. You know, I said this at the start of the series, and I'll say it again, but one of the reasons why I think this book resonated so much for me is that I remember Lauren and I walking around our block in the midst of the pandemic when it was like the central time where there was the death toll every night on CNN and where it was just like, what's going to happen next? Or do our kids go to school? How do we go to Target? What is all those 10,024 questions that we would ask every day. And at some point on our walk down block two, we asked her, like, wait, at what point do we get to stop and talk about everything that's happening around us? All of these things. Like, we've just moved from, like, one survival pattern to the next survival pattern. Here's what we need to do for tomorrow. Here's what we need to do for next week. But we never actually, like, stopped and sat in the reality that all of this is unfolding. Millions of lives are being lost. Our Our, our norms of reality are being... Th- challenge we've had to adapt we've had to adjust how things were the day before not how things are today at what point do we get to sit down and talk about my hope is that whether it's through small group um, dialogues that you've been a part of this summer or even just your personal engagement with the material provided inside of this book that you've been able to name some of those things all the things swirling around in the air all the things that you've been existing inside of long before the pandemic that you've actually had some space to sit down That's what the gift of this book has been for me. This book has given me the chance to soberly and properly assess the things that are outside of me, that have found a way inside of me, that are hijacking my story, and I don't want it to be our story too. I want us to walk out of this summer and into the fall better than we walked into this summer. I want us to be equipped and empowered to thrive. And so we reached this final moment. um, Look at my two boys, they're sleeping talking tonight about rest. They were, let me clarify. They were sleeping long before I, sw- I spoke, Mark Smeavy. <laughs> okay, they didn't fall asleep the moment I spoke. They were sleeping before. Eric Mitten. he talks about how when we get through this work and this process and this laborious challenge of naming the different things swirling in the air from capitalism to the World Wide Web to the things that were said at the dinner table to all these different pieces that reach on you and in you and threaten to take things away from you, when you get to all of that, you're left with what? Well, you need to understand, how do you exist in a world that is constantly in search of finding ways to leave you exhausted? How do you exist? How does your story survive a society that relies upon your sense of scarcity? You know, I've listened to this is um, years ago, but it just jumped out to me. The CEO of Netflix, he once said that, ah, there's a lot of different streaming services, a lot of different people I guess you could categorize as a competitor, but really our only competition is your sleep. And I'm not trying to go, like, extreme with this, but at the same time, you take that quote in and of itself, what he's saying is so true. Your ability to be healthy physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally healthy is hazardous to the business's health. Not just on Netflix, But so many corporations across our country are relying upon your unhealth to actually produce their health. And so as followers of Christ, when Paul talks about how you do not conform to the patterns of this world, how you actually practice some resistance in your life, and how you have your story carry some sense of backbone where you don't just give in to the demands of today, you don't just give in to every time the corporations call your name, and every time societal pressure leans in on you a little too much, you don't just say yes. How do you actually live a well-balanced life? Minton leaves off in the place that I would suggest that you need to be a person who knows how to rest. Wow, that rhymed. Somebody write that down. That should be a song lyric right there. But it's true, though. You need to be somebody who knows how to practice the centrality and the rhythm of Sabbath. And part of me feels very unfit to speak about this because um, I don't really have that rhythm in place. I just don't. Why are you laughing so loud, Maggie? Chill out, OK? You want to leave the room first? I don't. Like, I don't like sitting still. And maybe it's the ADHD. I don't know exactly what it is. But I like to, like, let's create. Let's go do something. Sitting still, breathing in, actually taking time off, just, it doesn't come easily to me. And yet, the corporations of America are saying that the only competition to our health is your health. And I don't want to participate in that system. I want to be somebody who actually has a backbone to say no. Who learns how to live in a lifestyle and a rhythm of rest that is able to resist the temptations of the world and the ever-calling phone that says, pick up, look at me, dance with this, enjoy that, go, 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 produce, 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 find some source of profit in order to prove that you are worth it. Minton leaves off his book by suggesting that um, of all the things that you need to be as you enter into the fall, you need to be a person who knows how to rest. I'm going to throw this fact in here because I read it, honestly, you guys, on the way in here. Legitimate source of study, but I need to throw this in because I don't know, Lynn, where else I would put it in. I don't have a plan for it exactly, but here's what the study said. When we think about rest, when we think about being a person whose story is centered upon the idea and the practice of Sabbath... There was a study that came out years ago that studied Seventh-day Adventists. That's a denomination of Christianity, and they center and they orient themselves completely around the idea of Sabbath. When they studied Adventists, not only did they find out that they were actually happier than most Americans, they also found out, shockingly to many, that they live 11 years longer than the average American lives. That's interesting in and of itself. What was more interesting is when this group of doctors studied that, and they said that if you were to study an average American lifestyle, an average American life, the duration of years that one American typically gets to spend, if they were to sum up all of the time that is typically devoted to a Sabbath practice, that would come to about 11 years. These scientists, these doctors, that gathered, they said it's almost as if The practice of Sabbath gives you back a day that you previously thought you had lost. Anybody tired in this room tonight? Anybody feeling like you are on the edge of your own resources? Like I had a moment the other day where I thought it was raining outside, and instead of having the energy to walk to the window, I pulled up my weather app. And if you thought that was bad the night before... I ran my laundry through the dryer twice because I wasn't ready yet, emotionally, to actually do the work (laughs) involved in folding it. So I speak from a place of feeling tired. I know what it's like to be at the edge of your own resources. I know what it's like to feel like you have lost a day. But what would it be like if our community in particular was able to center itself on the story of Sabbath and actually take this work seriously of getting one of our days back? Because it's at the heart of our faith. It's actually foundational to our faith. It's in the first story of our faith. I've set this story up in 10,000 different ways. I know you guys hear me say this all the time, but indulge me once more. When you consider the creation of the Eden story, the story of Adam and Eve, when it was finally put down from pen to paper, you think about 6th century exile, captive Jews in Babylon, Babylon, where they were slaves, oppressed, the marginalized community, forced to ask questions that they previously hadn't asked because they were accustomed to the status quo of society that they were in. But here they were, without their hometown, without the regular practices, without the regular gathering of community, and they were in this space where suddenly they asked questions, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to, like, pursue things in life? In our reality, here in Babylon, far away from Jerusalem, and it was at that point that they started to write down these stories that were told over campfires for years and years centuries and centuries that their ancestors had passed down of the Eden story they talked about how of all the practices some have gone some have stayed but the one thing that has remained has been the practice of sabbath and still to this day it is a practice that remains Matter of fact, whenever I talk about Sabbath, I think about being back in Jerusalem years ago. Debbie, you remember this trip. I remember when Friday night went down and the Sabbath suddenly began. It's an experience like like none other. I remember walking through the streets with our guy Ryan Corcoran with all the lights in the city shut down. Nobody's phone is vibrating. It's almost like you're traveling. Is that fair to say? It almost feels like you're traveling back in time. It's a different experience. Matter of fact, if we were to take a trip, community, to Jerusalem today, and I said, uh, our plan's going to set off for Friday. We'll get there by Saturday morning. By the time you get to the hotel, so seriously do the Jewish people practice the practice of Sabbath that when you get to the hotel and they say, your, floor is on floor, your room is on floor six, to get in the elevator and go up to the room, they will stop at every floor just to make sure that you don't have to press a button on your way up. They do not want you to work on the Sabbath. Because they insist, as the rabbis once insisted when they were in Babylonian captivity, that God didn't work on the Sabbath. To which I would ask, like, is that true? Here's my conundrum. If you read Genesis 2, and you read the Eden story... You read this part right here. And on the seventh day, after all of the creation of the the trees and the mountains, the animals and the forests and the people and everything that is came into now being, you read this moment in Genesis 2-2, the book end of Genesis 1, and it says... And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, if I were in Israel, they would say that God did not work on the Sabbath, but my wife would probably argue it differently. Because if I started an email on Tuesday night, but I was finishing it on Saturday, I did not finish that email on Tuesday night. I finished it on Saturday, and finishing is working. Do you hear what I'm saying right now? And so, my question for the rabbis immediately on first response is if I'm actually to think critically and engage with the text as we are encouraged to do is how do you both, in the span of 24 hours or one day as it's summed up in Scripture, how do you both fast from work while simultaneously finishing your work? How is that possible? I mean, with all the strict adherence to the Sabbath rituals and the practices that are are core to Jewish practices in Israel and beyond, how is it actually that God did not work on the seventh day when God was finishing God's work on the seventh day? The rabbis actually tossed and turned over this for centuries. And one of the answers that they came back to again and again that I think is marvelous, that I think is beautiful, is they said, if you want to understand what day seven had to tell you, you have to understand what day six came to tell. They said, on day six, after all the animals emerged from the earth, after all the things that were not came to be, then came the children of God Adam and Eve. Out of the dirt, out of the dust, the dust started to shake, the dust started to stretch, and it started to form into these human beings, Adam and Eve. Day six. God sees the dust starting to shake. God sees the dust starting to stretch. God sees Adam and Eve emerging from the earth. And here's what the text says about that moment. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But don't miss that first part. God blessed them. The word there for "bless" in the Hebrew language is barach. It means to praise, to sing a song of adoration, to celebrate as is. Before Adam and Eve were tasked with some sense of duty, they first were the ones to experience God's delight. Before they were hired, they were the ones who were held. Before they were told what to do, they were told that they are enough. Who you are is enough. Imagine that. This is Jesus in the Jordan in the arms of his cousin John when he steps into the river and there's a spirit that hovers over his head like a dove and it says, it is by you that I am well pleased. Listen, Jesus, before you ever become the one who heals the broken legs or cleanses the bodies of leprosy, before you walk on water, before you go all the way for love's sake and die on a cross, you need to know that you are the loved right now, regardless of what you do. You are enough. The aim of our whole series has been to remind you that you are enough. God's first message to Adam and Eve when God praises the fact that they are here, regardless of what they do with their here-ness, is that who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. We say it every week and we'll continue to do so because it's the core message of the gospel. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are you're enough. Regardless if you ever make a profit, regardless if you produce nothing but crap, you're enough. The reason why we gather on Sunday nights to barack God with Christian leading the music is because God first baracked us. We love the one who first loved us. We reroot ourselves in a story of sufficiency, of enoughness. Before we ever have to step back into the Mondays and the Tuesdays and the Wednesdays of the world that demand us to understand that we are not enough, that we need their product, that we need to buy their story, their myth, their illusion, that somehow if we do this thing or or conquer that battle, then we'll be enough. We call BS on Sunday nights and we say that's not true. Genesis 1 and throughout the New Testament is the redundant reminder that we're enough. But you know, it's one thing for, like, preachers to preach and people to speak a good word. But you have to put some practice behind it. Day six, Adam and Eve, they hear God say that I'm going to barack you in this moment. I'm going to praise because you're here. That's what matters most. The core story of your life needs to be the fact that you are enough, that you are, are sufficient in and of yourself. That's your story. The moment you flee from that, you're going to reach for a tree and grab something that you think that you need but you don't and you'll die in 10,000 different ways over and over again. So I'm going to start with a song of praise, day six. But then comes day seven. God previously had worked day one, two, three, four, and five. And day six, mountains, valleys, Grand Canyons, Plutos, Neptunes, forests, trees, giraffes. But the rabbis say, On the first full day of Adam and Eve's life, they woke up to a parent who didn't go to work. They woke up to a God who not just said that you are enough, but actually displayed for them to see. On their first full day of life, God puts on full explicit display that your story is not rooted in what you produce. Your story is rooted in who you are. You are the loved, I'm the lover. You are sufficient, I see you. Matt, what does this have to do with Sabbath? I will say this, the reason why I am presently in recovery, the reason why I had to turn myself into AA, the reason why so many people are spending 80 hours a week at a job providing for a family that they no longer know. The reason why so many people are running their lives like on a treadmill where they're going so fast but they're not getting anywhere. The reason why we have so many different contexts, but we don't have time to actually get close to anybody, is this sense that if we do this thing or that thing, then we'll be there, whatever the there may be. And so we go, and we grind, and we hustle, and we get after it, and shockingly, at the end of the day, we wake up and we go, I'm not there and instead of actually recoiling and going back to the scriptural story that says you were enough at the start, we don't know how to stop. And so we continue to push because we don't believe that everything's already been provided. It has. Are you a person who has a rhythm of rest? Are you a person who is rooted in this, this practice of reminding yourself again and again that, that what you produce is, not the produce is not the proof of who you are? That's already been declared. The Sermon on the Mount, the main message is, there's nothing that you have to do. So now what do you want to do? Do you see the difference? You are loved as is. There's nothing you have to do. How do you guys want to spend your story? What does rest look like for you? Parents out there, you might say, like, I got 10 hours of sleep last night and I still woke up bone tired and I don't know what to do about this. Here's what I want to clarify. Because a lot of times when we talk about Sabbath and the rhythm of rest, what we say is, like, you know, you work six days. And granted, that's part of, like, the Ten Commandments is that it's not just the rest. It's also like, yeah, you should break a sweat. You should get after some things. You should not just lay low and wait for your time to die. You should spend yourself in a worthy manner. But you need to rest. But oftentimes we talk about Sabbath is you work all the time, you're working too hard, so take a breath so that you can work all the time and work so hard. That's not my message. Rest is the time where you remind yourself of proper relations between creature and creator and that the world did not start with you, the world will not stop with you, and so be here and enjoy what is now. God pauses on day seven to enjoy the life on day six. Are you doing the same? Different kinds of rest, different kinds of people. I want to show you this video just to quickly remind you, and you can dive into it your own time. Um, different ways of rest.
1: Different types of rest you need. We're all exhausted, and it's probably because we're trying to fix it with just sleep and naps. This is physical rest. It includes active rest like yoga or massage therapy. Sleeping and yoga are great, but you're gonna need more than that. Up next is mental rest. Take short brain breaks throughout the day and keep a journal next to your bed to write down any intrusive thoughts. Third is sensory rest. Think cutting out computer screens, turning down lights, and basically unplugging every once in a while. Fourth is creative rest. Get out there and touch some grass, but if you can't do that, just make sure that your work area has some pictures of places you love or works that inspire you emotional rest is next allow yourself to be authentically yourself giving yourself time to freely express yourself and no people pleasing six is social rest this means keeping track of which relationships exhaust you and which ones revive you then do what you can to surround yourself with positive and supportive people as much as possible this works in real life or virtually lastly spiritual rest Prayer, meditation, community, whatever works for you that allows you to feel love, acceptance, and purpose. If you're getting enough sleep but you still feel tired, adding some of these may help you feel more rested.
0: That's a quick, really brief way I just want you to kind of give you, it's a gateway drug is what it is. I'm your dealer tonight. My name is Matt. But I want you to dive deeper into it and think about what are the ways that you, the rest is not being uh, present in your life. Lastly, let me end with this. and Debbie, I know I'm talking too long. It's a ramble night is what it is. In hindsight, this is an image that I have on my computer that I go back to often. When I think about the 10,000 different demands at my door every morning, the emails that are coming in, the pursuits that I want to pick up, and I think about the urgency that tends to be attached to them all, the volume of each kind of claim, I remember the story in Mark 4 of Jesus in the storm, fast asleep at the bottom of the boat. Jesus is not reactive to all the noise around him. Jesus is rooted in who he is. Jesus is a thermostat. Jesus isn't a thermometer. He sets the tone. May the same be said about us. May we be a people who are courageous enough to lose the rat race so that we can live fully as people. Christ, you are good. Christ, you are grateful. We appreciate this series, Lord, that you have led us into. Uh, God, the different ideas involved in trying to be people who are healthy and whole, not just talk a good game, but actually experience some kind of liberation, some kind of freedom, some kind of nutritional benefits that we, we, we desperately need in order for our story to survive. God, we know that part of this is rest. We know that part of it is having margin in a world that demands less and less of it. Give us the courage to lose in society so that we can actually win in our own stories. Give us the courage to actually be rooted in rest. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
2: I'm always struck by how often Matt and I will say, I feel like we talk about this a lot. We even said it last week that we need reminders. And this is one of those things, too, because I'll tell you, at my experience working in the church world, um, nobody rests. And, and actually, there's sometimes some pride taken in how hard you can go, how much you can produce, how little you can sleep. And I actually had a conversation a couple days ago with a younger woman who just finished seminary. And she grew up in the, in the church that we were at for years. And we were talking about that very thing. The importance of being intentional around your rest. The importance of doing that and and to be whole, to live a full life. So I need that reminder. As simple as that message sometimes seems, we need the reminder that we have to be intentional about resting. That we claim to be people who practice the ways of Jesus. And Matt, before you threw it up there, was thinking about Jesus resting on the bottom of the boat. I was thinking about Jesus taking a break and praying in the garden. I was thinking about Jesus out in the wilderness, taking time away, being intentional about space and rest. I think this moment in our service is often a time like that where we just pause and we're reminded that we are beloved children of God. So when we take bread... Together and we dip it into the cup, we remember just that. That we're good just as we are. That it's not about what we do, it's about who we are. People created in the image of God, each and every one of us. The night before Jesus died, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, This is my body broken for you. When you eat this, remember me. He took a cup poured wine into that cup and he said this is my blood shed for you the new covenant when you drink from this cup remember me so tonight we remember that we follow a god that rested we follow a god that calls us beloved we follow a god who calls us to rest too so during the music we invite you to come forward there will be three people up here there will be bread There will be a cup. There will also be the the little cups that you can take back to the pew if you're not ready yet to partake in our regular practice of communion. And there you will hear the words, body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can stop, get a little sanitizer, and um, come forward. Could you please stand as together we pray. Oh, I'm going to also say this. We're, we're trying to re-remember all this. You'll take the bread and you'll dip it into the cup. Together, let's pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is kingdom and power and glory forever. Amen.
0: That was beautiful. Thank you. That was medicinal. The other day was Juice's first day at school, and um, he's asleep over there. If you want to see him, I don't know why. Oh, he's awake. Okay, great. Um, Lauren was at a a meeting that morning because she hadn't heard tonight's message yet. And um, just kidding. But I, I played this song at the beginning while, to kind of get him in the mood. It was uh, um, if you have your singing voices. I've taken my dues. Da, 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 da. You don't know we are the champions. Queen doesn't matter. Okay, but there was something beautiful about when he was full chorus singing it because he knows that song front to back. Gets out to the front step and he's belting. You can't tell it in the photo, but he's belting. We are the champions, my friend. Da, da, da. And that's it. That's gospel right there. That sense of prior to any report card coming home, any myth that says that you need to earn your sense of enoughness, you are a champion right now because you get to be here today. And that frees you from all kinds of illusions, all kinds of concerns, all kinds of urgency, all kinds of anxiety. If we could rest in that Sabbath rhythm that says, everything I need is already here because I am enough. I'm a champion. Friends, Will you close your eyes, hold out your hands, and receive these words from the heart of God as you leave here tonight. No matter who you are or what you've done, who you love or what you've lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you are a beloved child of God and beloved you belong. Go in peace. We'll see you in two Sundays from now. Amen.